Hello, and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from global perspectives on health, medicine, and accessibility to interviews with social justice activists, filmmakers, artists, and academics from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and humanities because life happens at the intersections. Hello, uh, welcome to this new edition of Medical Humanities podcast series. Uh, this is Khalid Ali, film and media correspondent at Medical Humanities Journal. Uh, and it's a great pleasure to have uh, with me today uh, Cleo Barnard, uh, acclaimed uh, film director, writer, producer. Welcome to this uh, podcast, Cleo. It will be great if you can uh, tell us a bit about yourself and how you became a filmmaker. Well, yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. I came to filmmaking really via art school. So I started making records of my drawings with um, this beautiful 16 mil Bolex film camera. And I was doing a lot of charcoal drawings and, and wanted to make a record of them as they changed. So that was really my introduction to film and kind of got me hooked on celluloid, I suppose. Yeah, that, that that's a great introduction to the world of, of film and, and storytelling, but through a different medium. Um, I know that you uh, grew up in, in Yorkshire. Why Bradford in particular? How it has become a regular backdrop for three of the films we're going to talk about today? Yeah, as you said, I grew up near there. Um, and really it was the playwright, yeah. Andrea Dunbar, who drew drew me back there. I really love the work of yeah. Alan Clark, and he made a film called Read Sue and Bob 2, which was an adaptation of yeah. two of her plays. And I picked up a copy of her play, Read Sue and Bob 2, and it had been reprinted with a play called A State Affair, written by Robin Soames, um, that had been produced by Max Stafford Clark's company, who were called Out of Joint, who'd gone back yeah. to Buttershaw a decade on from Andrea's death and two decades on from when Read Sue and Bob 2 was written. And, and really it kind of took stock in a way of what changed in that very specific place where Andrea yeah. grew up uh, and wrote the place that she wrote about um, since over the last, uh, well, through the 80s and yeah. through the 90s. And in a way what I wanted to do was go back a third time and look at, what had changed another decade on and also reflect on those previous representations yeah. of um, the Buttershaw estate. If you could share with the, with the listeners a bit about Andrea Dunbar, the British playwright. She started writing at a very young age while she was still at school at the age of 15. But she had uh, what we can call a turbulent, uh, very difficult uh, life uh, growing up in the Buttershaw estate in, uh, in Bradford. A lot of adolescent angst grew up in a deprived community, a lot of domestic violence in the background. And she had a far from, uh, you know, your uh, standard uh, uh, protective family, if we may say. So her life was full of challenges and contradictions, but she translated that into, started that into into creative writing. And, and, the, and her play was uh, adapted into um, 
into a theater uh, in, in London. So that particular character, so, so the attraction to, was it the film which drew you to explore her life, Andrea Dunbar, or the story or the themes? Tell us more about your fascination, if I may say, with marginalized characters as such. Well, in some ways at that stage, I was, I suppose, as interested in the way marginalized mm. communities might be represented on on screen and on stage. And I guess I was as interested in that as much as I was interested in, in her. So, uh, but I kind of, I suppose I had this plan or idea about, about exploring the place and how it had been represented. She'd been asked to write something when she was 15 at school. Um, it was a piece of homework and her teacher, I suppose, recognised yeah. her talent and sent, her work into um I think it was BBC television yeah. and it was recognized it was picked up and then it was sent into the um Royal Court um Young Writers yeah. Festival um kind of by other people in a way recognizing that she was that she was very talented and and it was put on the first part of the arbor her play the arbor the first act, um, act of it was was staged in that yeah. festival um and then i think max stafford clark saw that and asked her to write a second act and that was that was how the arbor came to be in, in the theater the first act of that play is about her experience of getting pregnant while she was yeah. when she was 15 and as you say she she came from a um a difficult family i think mm. it's fair to say that her father was um an alcoholic and I think it's fair to say that he was yeah. abusive and she wrote about that very honestly and straightforwardly and with real I don't know she had an absolute ear for dialogue mm. you know she she could remember almost verbatim what had been said by who and then she was commissioned then to write the second half of the play by which time she was living in a um battered women's hostel mm. in Keithley and the second half of the play really deals with um, the birth of her first child um, and an abusive relationship that she was then in with the child's yeah. father. But we know later on that actually her uh, uh, life was uh, very um, difficult. She had a, a difficult, uh, uh, you know, progression in life as an artist, but well as 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 a as a woman. A sing, almost a single parent, three children from three different fathers. And that's what you have uh, portrayed in your film, the, uh, Ar the Arbor, in 2010. And you focused on her difficult relationship with one of her daughters, who later on as well had a, a very difficult life with, uh, you know, having fell pregnant and then her uh, her child died of an accidental overdose and then she she was uh, in prison so there, there was that mother um, daughter relationship was quite clear in, in your film so was that something that you wanted again to um to share with an audience and then we'll come to talk about the process of how you translated that into into film wanted to go back and look at the last 30 years of the way this particular place had been represented by her and then by 
you know, this this play by Robin Soames, this verbatim play, and I was also interested in uh, the complications yes. of verbatim and authenticity uh-huh. and all of that. So I knew I wanted to speak to Lorraine, who is her eldest yes. daughter, because of her words in the state affair, which ends that play, and they're very powerful. Um, and so I knew I wanted to speak to Lorraine, but I didn't know what had happened to her in the 10 years since the state affair. And she was sent to prison after that, wasn't she? She was. She yeah. went to prison, yeah. Um, and I then went and conducted yeah. these interviews with lots of different people who, who knew Andrea, and through that understood, including her sister, and through that understood how autobiographical the plays were. I didn't realise quite how autobiographical the other was until I did those interviews. And the interview with Lorraine was very uh, central, yeah. I suppose, to understanding something about Andrea, but also, I think, understanding something about cycles of deprivation mm. and cycles of, you know, of what it means when we, when we marginalise yeah. people and the impact of that. So in a way, through Lorraine and Andrea, it, it meant that you could look at kind of 30 years of a very specific place and, and a very specific family kind of through the words of, the, of people who are of that place and from that family. Uh, indeed. But then I, I'd like now to, to, to uh, ask about the style of representation. So, so you had a very specific idea of telling that story through a specific format. I'd like to explore with you how did that come about? And I'd like to share with again with the listeners the way you've told that specific story on film. Yeah, so so what I wanted to do was, was take this form of theatre, which is called verbatim theatre, and where you use the, the people, or the, the voices of the real people, um as the text um and on stage you know you have to suspend your disbelief or whatever because there's an actor there standing there telling you so so there's a sort of brechtian distancing i suppose where you you know you're watching something that's been constructed mm-hmm. in a sense and i guess i got curious about um screen documentaries and also um social mm-hmm. realist film where in a way the idea is to collapse the gap between reality and mm-hmm. representation. But of course we all know that, that that's impossible, yeah. really. So I suppose what I wanted to do by taking that technique from theatre and applying it to film was to make an audience consistently aware that they were watching something which had been yeah. constructed, which feels to me to be important because in Andrea's fiction she necessarily took things out or took people out (laughs) who become characters when you turn it into a play because she couldn't tell the story if they were there or, you know, so in a similar way, I I wanted to make an audience aware of how... For me, it's like a a first-hand narrative. It's bringing that authenticity, maybe more than just authenticity. You, You are experimenting in a way in in that in that format but i f- f- did you think of it was that an experiment that you were worried about i have to say that it it paid off in the sense that it, the film won major awards several uh, uh, uh british and international film festivals the the best documentary uh, f- uh filmmakers at the tribeca new york film festival 
the Guardian uh, Best uh, First Feature Award and the Fuzzerland Award at the London Film Festival. So was that, uh, did your um, risk taking uh, pay dividends? Well, I think I think the film probably came mm-hmm. at a time when 2010 the Tories were yeah, back in yeah, power, yeah. and it was you know 30 years since Margaret Thatcher, and you, so I think there was something about needing to hear from people on the margins. I suppose I think also um, it raised some questions about about yeah. documentary. It, because of the form that that I used in the film that I think were pertinent and important and that people were ready to engage with, yes. I suppose. You, you, you're, going, you're here revisiting the format that I read that there was a short random acts of intimacy that you'd use the similar approach to combining the lip syncing onto, uh, onto actors telling a story. Uh, was that what was uh, was there a, a a motive motivation there, or you wanted to experiment and share that approach with a different? So I'm I'm looking into the style of the of the film and the approach. Yeah, yeah. Formally, it was a very similar kind of experiment in a way to say because people were telling stories about their about something that had happened in the past, and I think inevitably when you do that, as soon as you start to construct a story you give it a beginning and a middle and an end and you might tell it completely differently the next time you tell it so um you know that that idea about uh authenticity or truth is is a complicated one and yeah and and in some ways i think if you highlight that well whilst at the same time trying to get to it if you see what i mean it seems to me you might stand a better chance it did definitely stand a fantastic chance of reaching out to a wider audience that that connected with the content as well as the format in which it was presented. Three years later, you made another uh, beautiful film, that, uh, The Selfish Giant, 2013. It was described as poetic and hauntingly beautiful, an adaptation of Oscar Wilde's story. Again, what was the attraction? You took this story a children's fable, but you made it again in a specific geographical location, Bradford again. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, when I was making The Arbor, there was um, a boy called Matty Bailey. Well, he was a boy then. <laughs> yes. He's a man now. <laughs> but he was a boy called Matty Bailey, and he, was, he had a, a best friend. And they would. Um, there's a horse that you see in the background mm-hmm. of The Arbor when Andrea's play The Ark. The Arbor is performed on Bratton Arbor, which is the street where she grew up. You, there's a there's a horse in the background, and that's Matty's horse, and he he was really helpful. So if we kind of needed to have the horse in shot yeah. or whatever, he'd he'd sort of um, he'd move the horse for us. And and um, he, in fact, he was the first person that I actually met when I first went up to Bradford to to Buttershaw specifically which was I think it was in 2008 and he was 14 at the time and he was the first person that I met and I got to know his family very well because they all Mm -hmm. live on the arbor next door to Andrea's Mm -hmm. family he um was excluded from school really from Mm -hmm. quite a young age um and he went out scrapping collecting Mm -hmm. scrap metal um 
and he was one of many kids who were was not going to secondary school and was going out collecting scrap metal um and I really wanted to tell his story or tell that story um but it yeah. wasn't his his particular stories the maybe the, the character was the inspiration if I'm right in saying but you it was an uh the, the film was an inspired by Oscar Wilde uh, short story the selfish giant so how did the the combination come about it uh, uh, the real life Matty and then Arbor and Swifty who we see in, in the film yeah you're right it was a combination of being inspired by a real person that, that I'd met and um and this uh, fairy mm. story and in a way wanting to put together these two seemingly incongruous things one which is social realism and one, one which is a a, a fairy story mm. or fable um and i suppose it's partly because although i might be considered to be a social mm -hmm. realist filmmaker there's part of me that that also you know wants to i suppose state the obvious in a mm. way which is that um there's no in a way there's no such thing mm. as realism there, there are there are different styles of filmmaking and and even though i'm, I'm very interested in combining the real or the document what's documented with with fiction and and that really fascinates me and interests me and and it's and it is because i want to communicate something about people's real lives i'm also conscious that there's a there's always inevitably there's a shaping that you shape an ending mm -hmm. to a film and you you know that we all tell stories and and that's what they are there's there's stories that that might be different the next time we tell them so it feels to me important to integrate those things and and this was a different way of doing that from the way that i'd done Indeed. it in the arbor while the setting was 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 again bradford but there was a distinctive visual uh aesthetic to 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 how you told arbor and swifty's story these two marginalized uh uh young children who are again as as you mentioned excluded from school went into this uh, business uh, you know illegal trade but there was a significant bond of friendship loyalty within a very hostile environment if we say the visual uh, style and, and the decision and i distinctively there was no soundtrack to the film if i may remember if i remember correctly that's right yeah there was there was well there's a very mm. minimal mm. score so harry escott actually is a mm. composer who i've worked with on um all of my yeah. uh, feature films and um he calls it stealth composing <laughs> because it's his made-up term which <laughs> which i really like which is because it's there but it's very minimal and very subtle so you're, you're not an yeah. audience isn't necessarily aware but yeah there are so he works quite closely with the sound designer who i work with who's uh, called tim barker um to to kind of uh, put tones and sounds together so there's a sp very specific bit where um where there's 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 a tone that kind of creates sets a particular atmosphere mm. and pulls the story through in a very particular way but i don't ever want it to be Mm. intrusive or to tell an audience what how to feel or or what to think so that's the reason minimalist. for it being <laughs> minimal. it, yeah minimalist but, mm. but uh, yeah. profoundly impactful if, if i may say and that reached to, to a wide audience the film premiered at Cannes at the the director's fortnight uh, in Cannes that's that's right yeah yeah 
Um, and yeah, Connor and yeah. Sean, who played yeah. Albert and Swifty, were there with us, and their and their mums came, and yeah, it was really it was really and, wonderful. And it was a proud moment uh, f- for you as a filmmaker and for your film team. And I read one of your interviews that you 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 mentioned that there's a lot of uh, um, pride in in the in, in the British film industry that, that uh, making. Uh, different uh, films like the Selfish Giant. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a tradition in the UK of um, of social realist filmmaking, which I'm very, I, I, I'm proud yeah. of. I think we we do it well, <laughs> and um, and there's also a kind of documentary tradition that that I guess in part that that grew out of. So um, yeah, you know, I, I love. Ken Loach's yep. films. I love um, uh, Alan Clark's yep. films. Mike Lee's work, I yeah. think, is really great. You know, I think it's. Um, uh, I think it's something for me. That, 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 uh, well. Indeed, indeed, I fully, uh, totally agree. It's very British stories, but uh, and very uh, connected to, to, to a specific environment, time, socio-political environment, but at the same time with universal um, messages and universal connotations. So fantastic. I do recommend, I watched it uh, last night again to to revisit those and I found it as uh, powerful and haunting as it was when I saw it at the London Film Festival back in 2013. Now, moving on to your most recent uh, Bradford set uh, film, uh, Ali and Ava. A totally different a, a departure from, if we can call it your signature, social realist narrative style. Uh, if, and if without telling too much or adding some spoiler alerts, uh, with a note of hope and happiness. Yeah, it felt important and something that um, Adil Akhtar, who plays Ali, and I talked about um, from quite early on was about joy as an act yeah, of resistance. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> because... Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, in a way, Andrea's story is a very tragic mm-hmm. story. And, and so is Lorraine's, her daughter's. And therefore, this, the, the Arbor is a, you know, is a difficult Indeed. film. <laughs> um, the Selfish Giant, in a way, I wanted to look at, at what an ideology of greed does to people's lives on the ground. And, mm. and I think that necessitated something that was, quite dark and difficult in some Absolutely. ways because because that is the impact of an ide- ideology mm. of greed i'm also conscious that in representing bradford in that way what what you what you don't see is what's brilliant and beautiful about mm. it I, I mean i hope there's something of that in both of those films through the humanity of i suppose on the people and so in, in a way with Ali and Ava, I really wanted to celebrate what was what was wonderful about the city. And because the people that I'd got to know through, you know, I've been, I guess, making films there now for over a decade. Yeah. And I'd I got to know people mm. really well and got to love people <laughs> very much. I grew up very we got, all got very fond of each other in a way, and um, and that shows. And th- through and, that, process, and that shows in yeah. the film. It's, it's a celebration of uh, life and diversity and joy. Joy as an act of, of resistance. I really 
related to that. It's a broader uh, uh, framework, a broader hu- human uh, uh, interplay between uh, uh, Ali, a Muslim uh, uh, person in Bradford, in a diverse, culturally diverse, with 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 with. Uh, Within the races part of Bradford, uh, Ava is a, an, a, a teacher. But they both, I like the symmetry in their characters, their openness to life in supporting others. And the connecting character here is Sophia, the young Hungarian, uh, probably re- uh, refugee family or, or family living in Bradford who was supported by both uh, Ali and Ava in different ways. Ali was supporting her family. He, although he was the landlord, but he was giving her lift to school. Ava was her school teacher who was supporting her, to, supporting Sophia to overcome her fees, go and play and explore life and enjoy life. The music score was uh, a testament to, to how you can overcome differences by joining, uh, by appreciating other uh, styles of music. So t- tell us about the things that, that brought Ali and Ava together as wonderful human beings. Yeah. Um, well, they, they again are both inspired by real people. So a little bit like um, the Selfish Giant, inspired yeah. by real people and then taking, I guess in this case, a kind of romantic yeah. melodrama rather than a fairy Indeed. tale as the genre element or whatever and putting those those like those somewhat incongruous things together so um yeah Ali was inspired by uh someone called Moe Hassan who is a landlord to that Hungarian family um and is based on him him and the support that he Uh gave to that family and to that um it was actually a little boy in the in in his family and it was written as a boy mm. in the script, the character. But mm-hmm. when we did the casting session, yeah. actually, um, uh, Ariana, who plays Sophia, was just absolutely fantastic. Mm. And then by complete coincidence, um, or Bradford is a very small yeah, town, yeah. <laughs> depending on yeah. how you look at it. Um, she, the, Ariana is related to Moe's tenants and lived a few doors down. Well, you managed to bring this, that there is a, or an organic development, uh, like where... Uh, life imitates uh, fiction. Yes, I did. Um, through uh, workshops um, with Adil, who was involved from very early on. Um, Adil Akhtar, the, the actor, Ali in the film, yeah. He plays Ali in the film, yeah. And um, um, and an actor called Rebecca Manley, who played Arba's mum in, in The Selfish Giant. Mm-hmm. We, I, I kind of sketched out an idea. then, um, And Rebecca knows... Uh, Rio, who inspired the character of Ava um, mm-hmm. through making the Selfish Giant, mm-hmm. so um, we we did workshops together, and then mm-hmm. I'd go away and write, and then we'd workshop some more scenes, and then I'd do some more writing. And Moe and Rio were reading the script as it was developing, and and we did a workshop that kind of Rio participated in insofar as she was mm. saying not like that like this <laughs> yeah, anyway so there's a whole kind of process yeah that that sort of takes place during the development and during the writing and it's it's, it's a process or a labor of love because uh, uh, I, I, I get, the film is available on netflix so i got i managed to watch it again uh, you know last night and i was really intrigued by l- revisiting it uh, there was that particular uh, scene from the film when uh, Ava tells Ali that uh, 
every time I look at you, that there's something new and something different about you. And, th- and that's exactly true of the film, that there is there is some new dimensions and new connections that I found between the characters and that symmetry I, w- I was talking about that was obvious uh, between them both uh, supporting uh, uh, Sophia. But this, with, still within that, uh, there were the, the heart and truth about the her son Callum, about Avis' son Callum, the abuse that she faced, uh, the domestic violence from uh, her husband, uh, ex-husband, the uh, Callum's father. So there were uh, still in in the midst of the joy and music and love and companionship and support and friendship, there were some hard-hitting um, societal issues. So t- tell us about the, uh, if we can call it, the dark side of the film. Yeah, so there's a, I guess, off-screen character insofar as he's dead, who's called Paul, but who has quite an impact and influence over Ava's life, I suppose, and, and Callum's life. And in a way, I suppose, Ali and Ava are, are a catalyst for change in each other's lives because both of them are stuck in different ways. And I think she is stuck because she can't she can't really face that or tell the truth to her son uh, about her father. Um, and in a way, Ali kind of forces that confrontation to happen, I suppose. For me, there's something about um, the history of violence in Ava's family Mm. that relates to the history of violence of of, uh, colonialism and the empire that, that, Mm. you know, that that has to be faced in order to be able to Mm. move on from it. Yeah, and I'm thinking here of again the, the symmetry of the characters. So there is the that uh, conflict, the 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 the, the hidden agendas between Avis, her abusive husband, and Callum, and similarly the the hidden uh, truth between Ali and Runa's uh, in Ali and Runa's relationship that they're married but they're separated, that they're not uh, sharing that information with their family, so they have an open relationship, and Runa goes. Uh, again and has uh, another relationship but they're stuck within the standard uh, shape of what a family looks like in a Muslim community is that uh, divorce or separation is a taboo so they are again within their own confines or within their own cages that the society has compartmentalized them in. Yeah I mean I think for Ali the it's it's partly because he doesn't want it to be true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's partly because he's still in love with Runa and he doesn't really want the relationship to end. And in some ways, uh, that is kind of what's more, it's kind of the bigger reason, I think, mm. for him not being able to... To end the... the to, to, to end. He doesn't end want it to end. And, mm. and I think he he feels if he doesn't tell his family, then it's not true. Mm. Um, So I think that's him being stuck is, is, is kind of different in a way Mm. from Mm. Mm. from why Ava is stuck. So so you went to to Brad 2010, 2013 and 2021 through the Arbor, the Selfish Giant and Ali and Ava. Um, And and reading through some of your uh, uh, 
interviews around Ali and Avid, you were happy to go back and 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 be part of that bigger uh, of of the Bradford, you know, societies and culture and life and it, with its diversity. Are you going back to Bradford? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. I think, yeah. yeah, there's always going to be a big part of my heart yeah. in in Bradford. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. I mean, I've just I've grown to uh, really love it. And you're fond. It's obviously you're fond of the yeah. place and the people. The people, yeah, yeah, very much so. And um, and you know, I guess. probably scratch the surface of any street and you find mm. really fascinating interesting stories i think i think maybe what what it is about bradford is that it yeah. had this it has this diversity that you that that you're talking about mm. and it also has um this deprivation mm. because of the collapse of the textile industry in the in the 80s um and, and yeah so i think there's it's a there's some kind of microcosm there or something Indeed. of being able to explore lots of things that are very relevant and important i suppose uh, more globally it, it is not very well put but i hope you know what i mean <laughs> I, I, I'm, i'm following thank you so much it's a special place but uh, i have to say that it's it takes a special eye a special director and filmmaker to identify those areas of um conflict of tension but as well as areas of uh, beauty and originality and uniqueness if, if i may say so and we uh, as as audience we are the richer for for having experienced the the stories of of uh, andrea dombardi uh, lorraine arbor and swifty and Eva, and all those who are around them uh, in their lives making uh, their uh, making their individual stories and us reflecting as, as audience as uh, uh, humanities scholars academics pract- health and social care pro- professionals or lay audience so and for all that uh, cleo i must thank you ever so much for uh, the wonderful opportunity of uh, exploring with you the the behind behind the scenes uh, of those three wonderful films that i do uh recommend to the listeners and the audience and the readers of uh, medical humanities thank you ever so much thank you thanks so much for inviting me thank you it's a pleasure thank you so much thanks leo we look for your new uh, adventure a new film maybe in, in bradford again maybe yeah <laughs> one you. never knows thank you so thank much thank you so much thank you for listening to the medical humanities podcast Since 2020, transcripts are available for all shows on our blog. Stay in touch by reading the journal and blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We are also on Twitter as medhums_bmj. underscore BMJ.